Hello, this is Linda Vetris Nichols, and do I have an amazing woman to introduce you to, Catherine Fitzgerald. Welcome, Catherine. Oh, thank you, Linda. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Honored to have you. You have the coolest slide here from your website. Oh, my gosh. Tell me a little bit more about it. I know it's from Australia, and it's the Sydney Opera House, right? That's right. That's right. I, I tell you, that is a very significant picture because I took it myself okay. on my very first trip uh, internationally by myself. Wow. And um, I did that about three and a half years ago. And okay. it really opened my mind in a way that I was very unexpected. I went on an adventure for 10 days and, you know, my children were all kind of what is she doing? Why is she going on vacation by herself? You know, because I've never done that, including my, right? you know, many women, I think on their, their, a, a monumental birthday, which starts with um, five. Um, <laughs> do well, that one? Yeah, that, that one. was a long time ago on this end, 14 <laughs> years ago, that one. <laughs> well, they, you know, many people do something personally, you know, for yeah. themselves during that yeah. time. I did my not. Mom I my mom started traveling in her fifties. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I took my sons on vacation, which was kind of a, I mean, I loved it. They were wonderful, but it was not my vacation. It was their vacation, you know? And so this kind of evolved out of a desire for me to just explore something that was in my heart and go for it. And so I went to Sydney and during my trip, I took a tour of the opera house, like the origins of the opera house. How did it come to be? And the story of the uh, architect and his design and how mm -hmm. he entered a contest. He's not even an Australian. He's from oh. uh, the Netherlands, I believe. I can't quite recall at this point. Anyway, he, uh, or Norway maybe, um, he came to uh, designing this through, you know, he just designed it in his mind, but there was Ooh. no engineering that had ever done what he designed. So oh the picture he drew won the contest, but nobody knew how to build it. So it began an odyssey of many years of them, you know, trying different things and creating the opera house. And then there was all kinds of political battles and money and all kinds of stuff. It's just an incredible story. And I, yeah. I think they should make a movie out of it, but they haven't. But nice. for, for me, it became kind of a cathartic experience because here I am um, in a new chapter of my life, becoming yeah. a coach and having gone on this vacation for myself. And I, it was the most amazing time because I didn't have to ask anybody what they wanted to do in the morning. I got to decide and then go do it. And that was the first time since I was in my late teens that I was actually able to do that. Wow. And so, um, yeah, it was really monumental in my life. And so that's why it's there. And I'm sure it's like, oh, she must be Australian. No, no. I'm an American who went there and had a life-changing experience. <laughs> oh, that is just the coolest. I love it. What a great story. Your story and the architect. Well, the guy oh, yeah. who's not an architect, right? That guy's story. Yeah. So Unbelievable. Cool. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very. Okay. So... Your actual story of transformation then, like, from when you were even little, right? I know a little mm -hmm. bit about you. You had um, kind of, like, even, like, your upbringing and stuff. would love to have you share a little bit about that. 
background. <laughs> yes, I come from a, what I would call, a, let's see, a biologically volatile background <laughs> in that my genetics are Irish and Czech and French and English and but <laughs> Irish and Czech are the ones that I really resonate with and both right. of them are you know known for their um, exuberance in both love and anger. <laughs> Ooh, there you <laughs> go. So, so I um, I grew up with uh, being the, the oldest of three children okay. and my middle sibling who was my brother um, passed away when he was 18 years old and Ooh. I was 20 25 wow. and it was just you know um, actually 23 um, he was um, born with muscular dystrophy Duchenne muscular dystrophy and when I was uh, young like under 10 years of age my yeah. mother you know and dad found out that my brother's life expectancy was between 13 and 18 and that he would be confined to a wheelchair within a very short amount of time of um, him learning to walk. So between mm -hmm. seven and 10, he was walking. And by 10, he was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Ugh. And so it was a progressively degenerative disease. Right. But it was all on his muscles. It was not his brain. So right. he was brilliant. And he was an incredible, um, wow what do I want to say? He was, he was a thought leader, even in his wow. young life. And, he, you know, one of the, there were many lessons that my brother taught me, but one um, particularly was perspective about um, humanity and humility and vulnerability. And, Ooh. you know, it, it isn't, it, it isn't, uh, it wasn't in the moment that I recognized it. It was really yeah. in looking backwards and, and recognizing my own personal um, uh, predisposition towards I can do it myself, I'm self-contained, right. I've got this, and, and recognizing that vulnerability and humanity, humil humility are part of our humanity that, that are probably the most accessible for us in, relate, in relation to other humans. Oh, and yeah. People really relate to that. They don't relate to our perfectionism. That's <laughs> exactly. And that inner critic, you know, was in full, full force in my life because I was the oldest of three and, and, you know, all the hopes and dreams of your children, you, you do, um, in, in, uh, put on them expectations and, right. you know, you try to help them be the best they can be by reevaluating the plays that have happened and how you could improve what you were doing, you know, so that inner critic voice is really, has been always very strong and that yeah. has not always been my best friend. And mm -hmm. so I think that in um, recognizing one of the things um, is how hard it is to accept help. Yeah. Um, and, and then looking at my brother and realizing that he spent his life needing help. Yeah. And he did it with such grace oh. and such incredible ability to just accept what was going on. And so that's a life lesson that really resonated with me. Oh, yeah. that right there is a beautiful story. I'll interject real quick. I worked in a psychiatric day treatment center. And when my boss's boss said she hired someone in a wheelchair, we were all like, what? These kids were very violent. Like, we just saw them like picking up our wheelchair and throwing her across the room, right? <laughs> well, you mm -hmm. can't really do that with a motorized wheelchair too easily. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. never laid a finger on her. Never. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, that 
was, yeah, born with muscular dystrophy. Um, she didn't even have the ability to like reach her arms forward. She had a service dog with her. Um, she ended up like taking pills so she get her period like once a year and just take a week off of work. And um, she had a surgery where she um, urinated through a tube. She could just stick a tube. When she had to go to the bathroom, she'd just stick a tube in her belly button and pee. <laughs> oh my goodness. Save number two for at home. And yeah, she was so independent. She um, ended up learning to drive with the hand things and, um, and uh, you know, getting her driver's license and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, so when she'd correct papers, she'd get her arms up. She could go this way with her muscles, but she couldn't mm -hmm. go forward. So she'd just get her hands on the table and then she'd crawl her fingers forward. So, and then she could correct the papers. It was just amazing. My, my, independent. my brother, yeah, my brother was very much the same in that he could not, you know, he couldn't scratch his nose if it itched, you know? Oh. And so the, the whole process of his life, and, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's like 46 different types of neuromuscular disorders under no. the umbrella of muscular dystrophy. Wow, and so I did. He had, he had one, he had one of the most severe. So ALS yeah. used to be under MDA, but now oh, they're, uh, you ALS. know, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, yeah. But Duchenne is the, you know, the equivalent, but in a longer um uh, period of time like Got ALS it. is usually two to three years and it hits at adulthood whereas this isn't you know at birth and it right? progressively de degenerates and what happens is their growth outstrips their degeneration between age seven and ten and okay. so they do have the ability to walk for a little bit but then they end up back in a wheelchair because their growth is you know their degeneration outstrips the growth and then then they end up in a chair the rest of their life. And most right. of them don't die of muscular dystrophy. They die oh. of a, a um, secondary infection sure. like pneumonia or the flu or, you know, something yeah. like that. But yeah. uh, my brother actually had his heart muscle give out and oh. um, he was uh, at school the day he died. He oh. was, you know, and he didn't die at school. He was taken by ambulance to okay. the hospital and died at the hospital. But, but he, lived every day until he died. And that's another message nice. to me that, you know, regardless of what is going on in your life, yeah. you have choices. And right. he chose always to live with a, an optimistic spirit. And, but he, he was an artist. And so I have a lot oh. of his artwork. Um, and, and he, you know, he drew one in particular that was him sitting in his electric wheelchair with a, he had a um, acrylic desktop that had an edge on it. And his control was in the center, but he drew a photo, you know, like looks like a, it's a pen and ink, but it looks like a photograph of his arm and the desk and his controller yeah. looking from his perspective oh, at his cool. body, with, including his legs and his feet. And, you know, and it, it, it was, it's so telling of, you know, that his world was very, you know, limited and yet he was brilliant and he was always learning and he was always very interested in other people and other things and science and the world nice. and um and so that was always a great message but I yeah. think you know that also also was a spur in my life because we were always very focused on trying to find a cure from MD and oh, I became yeah. this 
state youth rep for muscular dystrophy when I was oh, okay. 16 years old and then um, was interviewed uh, because of a series of other things on the national telethon and met Jerry Lewis and, and met David Hartman wow. and, and really learned um, how to convey uh, word pictures, uh, stories um, yeah. that resonate with people. And so that's, and, and always, I think leading with heart is, you know, setting the example by talking about the real stuff, not yeah. the, not the surface stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Hey, quick question. Are you familiar with the movie Lorenzo's Oil? Yes. I yeah, watched it. I bet you and I wept through it, actually. Well, actually. yeah. When did you see it? Before or after your brother died? After. Yeah. Oh, My brother okay. died in 1986. So it. he's been gone a long time. It's hard. It's staggering for me. He would be 50 three years old this year it's like yeah it's funny when people die because like my dad died at 42 when I hit 42 I went oh my gosh he really was young yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely so very cool yeah so this whole leading with heart thing comes um you come by it honestly (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) quite the history of leading with heart very Mm -hmm. good Okay, so tell so let's keep going on your journey then. Sure. So um, then I, you know, I went off to college at um, UCLA when I was seventeen, and uh, that was uh, probably the first time in my life I was like the dog that caught the pickup truck. You know, I I wanted to go there more than anything. That's where my brother was diagnosed. And that's where our family went on a regular basis for tests when I was young, very young. And my mother always said, you can do whatever you put your mind to. And I decided, you know, I didn't know about university, except for that she had planted a seed that I wanted to go, you know, that I could go to college. She went to college. She was the first woman in her family to go to college. And so um, she uh, very much said, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. And so when I went to UCLA, I didn't apply anywhere else, which my son find absolutely confounding that I would have taken that giant risk of not being accepted. But in my mind, it was like, I, I, I put my mind to it. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Thankfully I did get in, but I was 17 and I got to Los Angeles and had lived in a very small town in Fresno, California. And my perspective of the world was, although I had, you know, done a little bit of traveling, I'd flown to New York to be interviewed and that kind of thing the summer before I went, I thought I knew everything, but I got there and boy, that was a whole different experience. And um, so I spent, you know, five years in LA, four and a half and and came back home. And, and uh, so I've raised three sons. They were um, 19, 20, 23 and 27. This is the odd year. Next year will be the even year, the old (laughs) (laughs) and even age. Um, and I, um, you know, embarking over the last two years on a coaching career and, and started my own company. And my focus really, um, is helping people, um, to embrace the possibilities of their life. And I, I have, um, been in many different roles in my life from a career standpoint. And I was, uh, in, in health insurance early on, um, as a regional sales manager, Mm -hmm. Mr. Classic, um, promotion that happens because you're really good at something. Now we're going to make you in charge of everybody else who's doing that. And that's not always a great translation. Um, you know, because you're good at something, you're a good, you're a good doer. doesn't mean you're a good leader, even though you may have, you know, great 
qualities to, that could be developed as a leader without the perspective that you've now relinquished your job as a doer and you've become a developer of other people who are doers. You know, that whole transition, that mindset between leadership yeah. and, and employee. Um, and so engaging teams and, and working with teams was something that I learned by making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> right. And, and, and so uh, then I stayed home with my kids and I started to work for a nonprofit and did a lot of grant writing and working on, you know, keeping a nonprofit afloat for a while, a very small one, but it was uh, five children's choirs, K through 12. And I took 65 kids to Europe and their parents, which was a, oh, yeah. a, bundle, a bundle of excitement. Um, and they, um, I, you know, we partnered with Placido Domingo's LA Opera and had his star um, soprano come to Fresno and sing with our children's choir. And, you know, we did a lot of things that were really big for yeah. a little tiny nonprofit. And then I um, kind of stayed home with my third son until he went to kindergarten. And then I went out looking again and I ended up completely, you know, in a startling position, which was I became the executive director and CEO of Catholic Charities for the Diocese of Fresno, which was a big le leap from a children's choir, but it was also a nonprofit, but it was 60 employees in five locations and $5 million budget. And when I got there, they were kind of falling off a cliff. Oh, um, no. from a financial standpoint. They had sure. not had a current financial in five years. They were behind on their independent audits. They had oh. all kinds of grantors that were knocking on their door for reports and things. Right. And so I spent five years kind of rebuilding the general ledger and getting all the, all the financials in order. And then, you know, um, bringing the, uh, what do I say? Uh, the, uh, the programs together under one uh, roof, getting all the, the audits, the independent audits done, uh, petitioning the IRS to give them, you know, waivers on the $150,000 worth of penalties they, they owed because they hadn't filed taxes and all kinds of things. So we crazy. kind of pulled it back from the cliff. And, and, but the biggest thing for me was that I kind of have to have a passion center at the begin at the center of whatever I'm doing. I've kind of right. learned that as me I too. go along. And yep. for me, the, ch the children's choir was music. I grew up with music. And then okay. for, for Catholic Charities, it, it really became helping people and, and not like giving a handout, but giving a hand up. That was kind of nice. in my mind, the most important thing, because I was really sensitive to people's human dignity and, yeah. and feeling like I wasn't diminishing their humanity by, you know, saying they were less than or giving them something that they couldn't get for themselves. So right. I, I really struggled with the line out the door and around the block at Catholic Charities for that time period. And I wanted not only the employees of Catholic Charities, but the, 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 clients as we talked to the, uh, spoke about them to feel empowered to make changes in their life but I sure. couldn't ever kind of connect the dots so then I went to work for um, a, a bank here in in Fresno that was a, that is a, a community bank that was founded on the principles of the great game of business and it's it's really um, there that I discovered financial literacy training and leadership that really is about developing people. And for me, the light bulb went on because I felt like the line never got shorter at Catholic Charities because right. they didn't have enough information. Mm -hmm. And they also had a lot of limiting beliefs. And so in a great game company, you are empowering everybody in the, the company to um, see 
what they can do to help move the company forward into a more sustainable, strong, financially, you know, prosperous position, because there's a stake in the outcome for every employee. So there's a share in whatever above and beyond sustainability that the company achieves, then they share it with their employees. And so that kind of was like the light bulb, the aha moment for me. That you know, when people are given the information and then respected and valued as human beings with their perspective and their life experience that they bring into the to the equation, then you have the mix for people to help create something and support it organically. Wow. And that engagement is is really you know based on human dignity and yeah. and and leading with the fact that people are humans first mm-hmm. and that it's unrealistic in our, in our history and in the way the, um, uh, the organizations have evolved, the leadership, top-down command and control, you know, that assumes that people who are not in the decision-making seat are able to come to work and just be a worker only, right. one-dimensional, no here's your job, Right. And and I'm going to tell you what to do. Put your head down and do it. And don't think and don't look at the landscape. Just do what I tell you to do, because I know best because I'm the leader. And right. I think that, you know, really recognizing that people bring them their whole selves to the office, their life experience, their perspective, their, you know, their vision. And if we value that and we find a way to foster and nurture the environment so they feel safe to share their their ideas and yep. then we consider them and we move together towards something that's better for everyone, then we have really unlocked, I think, the key to what is going to be the future of leadership in our world. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think the millennials are gonna sit back and tolerate mm-hmm. what you know you and I tolerated as women in industry <laughs> early in the world. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that glass ceiling co- concept is not going to be acceptable for this generation. They've grown up in an international world. They have information from all over the world. Unlike yep. me, who at 17 knew New York City and LA, and that was it. Yeah. You know, they have a worldview. They and do. they're getting millions of bytes of information through Twitter and Instagram and all yeah. of those different areas. And they expect to be included in the process in yeah. their environment, in their job. Yeah. And and work life balance perspective choices yeah. are built into the way they think, and they were not for you and I. I would say, I mean, I I just needed a job. I mean, I got home from college, and my dad's question to me every single day until I got a job is, "Did you right. get a job yet today?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and know? we were taught what to think, and and they're they've been taught how to think. Mm-hmm. You know, schooling is even yeah. different. <laughs>